Well, good morning. I did my best on the porch, but if you're here for the first time and I didn't get a chance to meet you, welcome. My name is Bruce Garner, and I'd love for you to open your Bibles with me, please, in 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll pick up where we left off last week, 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you look there, as soon as you find your place, I also want to tell you of some motives for prayer that we have. The first, of course, is on everybody's mind and in every newscast. A lot of people have already suffered extensive damage because of Hurricane Irma, and now a part of our own country is really beginning to feel those effects. We should pray for God's mercy. We should pray for God's people to act like God's people in the middle of all that. As I'm going to explain to you from today's passage, real harsh suffering puts people at a crossroads between trusting God and knowing Him or turning their back on Him, and that's a double tragedy because in doing that, they run away from the only one who could actually help. So there's so much to pray for, and when trouble is that overwhelming, we're not entirely sure how to pray. We're not, we can't be clear on all that God could do and wants to do in that situation, but we can trust Him. It's a passage in Scripture I love, Romans 8.26, that explicitly says we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us, in other words, within us, speaks to God on our behalf, speaks within us. And He does so, Paul says, with groanings that are due too deep for words. In other words, no matter how much you and I care and how errant, how mistaken our prayer may be, God cares much more and He knows what we need. Much like a father who has an injured child and the little kid can't find the words, can't catch his breath. The Father knows, and His purposes are good. So let's pray for Florida and for the Caribbean and everywhere else that monster storm might yet go. The second is a lot closer to home. Pastor Bruce Melton was my pastor and Jim's pastor and Cindy Davis's pastor and pastor to many to you in this second service. He served this church faithfully for three decades. And on Friday morning at his home in Enid, Oklahoma, God called him to glory. Many of you already know that through social media, it's, it's, uh, that news spreads very quickly. But I'd love for you to keep his wife, Nelda, and his children and everybody who loved him in prayer. Some of us are going to be going uh, to the memorial service this Tuesday morning. In God's mercy, Pastor Melton had not been in good health for a very long time, and he'd had a rough few weeks in God's mercy, his kids gathered to see him, not because they thought there was any imminent danger apparently, but just because they wanted to be with him. And God gave them a good day together on Thursday, and he died at home on Friday morning. So, you know, as a guy who works literally at his desk every day and have for 12 years as your senior pastor, I can't begin to convey to you how grateful I am for him. Aside from from immediate family, my own parents and my in-laws. Uh, nobody invested more, nobody cared more, not only for me, but for so many people that he helped bring along as uh, young Christians who he entrusted ministry to. When I think about him, I think I was the youngest 
person on his staff. He hired me when I was only a freshman in college. I think our average age at that time was 26. Can you imagine what a full-grown man put up with with a staff that young dealing with people's real lives? How patient he had to be with all of us? Well, his love and his patience made a big difference. And a lot of the good that you've experienced at this church, if you felt good and loved from us, a lot of it has his signature because of the way he loved and taught and led us. So could we pray together as a church family for these two big things? Father, thank you that you know all things and you know your plans and your purposes. We don't, not always. You're always doing many, many things because you know best and you know all the factors. We may be aware only dimly of a few things that we can see your hand in. That this morning as a congregation, Lord, with troubles of our own, we want to bring you the troubles and the fears of others. We want to pray for everyone in Florida and everywhere else in our country that is going to be affected and is already, uh, Lord, severely affected by this storm. I pray for all those who have already been left in the wake of this storm or Harvey's. Help Christians, Lord, to act like Jesus and to love and serve and give as He would if He were on the ground in those troubled places. And Lord, I pray for those who are grieving and for a sad church family that gathers uh, this morning, Lord, in Enid at Graceway Baptist Church. Would you bless Nelda and her children and that big extended family and many, Lord, who owe so much of our lives and our blessings to the way you blessed and led and gave us Dr. Bruce Melton. Thank you for him. Speak grace and comfort, Lord, to all of us according to our need. And I pray that you'd especially bear the burdens of his widow. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have missed it, but I bet you didn't. A couple weeks ago, there was a prize fight. Were you aware? Some guy named Mayweather got into a ring with some other guy named McGregor, and you couldn't escape it. I mean, you couldn't go to 7-Eleven. You couldn't go anywhere without somebody inviting you to drop $100 to watch the circus. And for good reason. I mean, they did okay. I looked it up. They made about a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue. I can't even fathom that. I'm good with words, not numbers. So I, I just can't even, I can't count that high. I can't conceive of that amount of money. And of course, the, the combatants, they got paid. They, I guess at a certain point, you make so much money that you don't even want people to know how much money you made. So the terms were not disclosed, but people who know that industry say that the guy who lost probably made 30 million bucks. The guy who won made 70 million bucks. Can you imagine? That'd be a pretty good Tuesday, right? <laughs> get a tithe off of that, get 3 million off the 30, that'd be wonderful. And they, you know, I didn't watch it, but I saw highlights later and I saw pictures. It appeared that for about 10 rounds they tried to kill each other. And one of them actually got knocked out. And then the strangest thing happened. When it was over, they smiled and they laughed and they hugged. And no wonder. The guy who lost is walking out with $30 million in his bank account. So I've got dumb friends, you know. I can be a very dumb man and I draw dumb friendships into my life. And some of my dumb friends said, you know, $30 million, I'd stand in there. 
any of your friends say anything like that? You know they did. Don't point at each other. I guarantee you, only men made that offer, right? No women made such a statement. And I said to the dumb friend who said that, well, yeah, bro, you could stand in there, but you wouldn't survive to enjoy it, so what good would the 30 million do the likes of you and me? But those guys ended up laughing. There were pictures later of them partying. I think now they're going to be best friends because they, they played the rest of us and made, became, in about 30 minutes, became wealthy, fabulously wealthy beyond anyone's imagination. And the reason for that is, the reason it ended in hugs and smiles and parties is because it wasn't a real fight. It was a sporting fight. It was a combat sport. But that's all it was. It was athletic competition. In real fights, the kinds we see all over the world, the combatants don't smile and hug each other afterward. In the very best case scenario, one side of the fight may smile. But if it's a deadly fight, if it's a fight for life and death, those men, those women will smile grimly through hollow eyes because they've seen real life, real suffering, real wounds, and real death. We see that all over the media these days. That's one of the reasons that living in the 21st century feels so tense. And it's that kind of intensity that there is a fight for life itself that Peter closes his letter with in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's writing to Christians who have been scattered by Roman persecution. The fabric of their lives is being torn apart. They've suffered for Jesus, and marriages have suffered, and friendships have been broken, and jobs have been lost, and people are facing genuine financial insecurity because they have proclaimed their trust in Jesus, that they believed He was the one who kept all the promises and prophecies in this book. And in a pagan culture that knew nothing of that, there was pushback from mothers and fathers and employers. The religious and the social systems were upset by something so outrageous, and they're hurting now. They've been scattered by personal and official persecution. They've been scattered all across the Roman Empire. And Peter has been telling them about how to endure that suffering. Last week, earlier in the chapter, he said to them, get low, humble yourself under God's mighty hand so that at the proper time He may lift you up. And while you do that, the way you humble yourself is you take all your anxieties and you throw them on God because He cares for you. Then he goes and takes another step, and if anything, it's more intense. Listen, 1 Peter 5.8 tells you of a fight, tells you of a dangerous fight, a fight that is not sport, a fight that the adversary intends to be deadly. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I'll read it first, then I'm going to invite you to read it with me off your outline so we can all read the same translation together. Here's what the Bible says. Peter wrote to these suffering Christians, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You read verses 8 through 11 with me. It says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's your fight tips. Here's Peter, well acquainted with suffering, having suffered lies, defeat, embarrassment at the hands of this fight, in this fight himself, telling these suffering Christians how to fight and how to win. First of all, he says, stay alert because the fight you're in is deadly. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. That's so countercultural. I mean, we live in such an astonishing age. You know, I can watch more movies than I could have possibly known existed when I was a kid on my phone. There's entertainment everywhere. I was on a plane recently, and the Wi-Fi went down, and people started griping about Wi-Fi not being available at 30,000 feet. Can you imagine? It stinks. 30 minutes without Wi-Fi. <laughs> Our world is so crafted for comfort, for convenience, for customization, to take care of you, to know you, and to serve you, to anticipate needs, to run to meet needs that you didn't even know you have. To hear these instructions, be sober and be watchful, brings us into a different kind of reality. Peter's going to say, because you have an adversary, his name is the devil, and here is his attitude. He is like a roaring lion stalking his prey, and he doesn't intend to frighten. He intends to devour. He intends to destroy Be sober and watchful. What does that mean? It means to be clear-minded, to be alert, to be vigilant. See, one of the reasons I say it's countercultural is we're on a 200-year roughly philosophical experiment and project in this country. Beginning at the level of formal education that is intended to tell you that the physical world, the material world that you can see and touch and taste and experience with your body is all that there is. That there is no spiritual reality, that this present world that you can see, the chair you're sitting in, the body you're enjoying, the experiences you're having, that's all there is, and that you're some kind of highly evolved, incredibly intelligent super ape who through an accident of chemistry and electricity enjoys life at the top of the food chain, but that's all there is. 
Peter says, no, there's something else, and you need to be clear-headed. You need to be sober-minded and watchful. There's a reason alcohol and drugs are forbidden in combat zones. If the fight is deadly, no one can afford to have their senses even slightly dulled if life is on the line. And Peter says, you have an adversary. You have an enemy. You have someone set against you, and he calls him the devil. A little explanation of language. The Greek word wasn't actually translated. It's diabolos. And you can hear that. They just brought it over from Greek into English and said the devil. The reason for that is the translator wants you to know you're not referring to a force, but to a specific individual, to a creation that the Bible elsewhere explains is actually one of the angels that God created who wanted to usurp God and take His place, and in a moment was thrown from glory, came here and was part of the ruin of sin in the world that we now experience. So that as one good theologian said, all of God's creation is both glorious and fallen. And that's the world you live in. And He's real. He's not fictitious. He's not imaginary. He's not a mythical being. And we have a lot to overcome there because the culture, when we speak about the devil, all kinds of images put there by popular culture come to mind. I say the devil, what images come to mind? We think in pictures. I say devil, what comes to mind first? Some knucklehead running around in red pajamas and horns, right, with a trident, kind of playfully poking people in the rear end, right? No, that's not it at all. I believe in the devil for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that Jesus referred to him very personally. Jesus himself experienced his temptation. In fact, if you look in Luke chapter 12, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 10, watch this verse. Jesus has sent out 72 men. This is a larger group than the 12 apostles, but these are men who are likewise called and likewise trained. He has sent them out to do what He does. The Jesus movement is taking off and multiplying, and it has grown so much that Jesus is sending much greater numbers to preach and to do the miracles that Jesus Himself was doing, all pointing back to Him as the one God had promised. And we don't even know who these men are, but they must have been drawn from the same ordinary walks of life as all the others. So there were probably laborers and fishermen among their number. From the men that Jesus called, He just calls ordinary men, unimpressive men, men of all different walks of life who share this in common. They're just normal people. But they go out on this preaching tour, and they come back, and they huddle up with Jesus, and these very ordinary people bring a pretty amazing report. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, put yourself in their situation, because you're like me. You're just an ordinary person. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine yourself being, a being able to say this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. How would you feel? He went from being a junior in high school to an exorcist in Jesus' name. <laughs> Pretty amazing, no? How did I get here? How did this happen? I'm seeing the reality behind physical reality, and I'm engaging it. And because of Jesus, I'm actually winning. 
And Jesus gives them this incredible response. He said to them, read Jesus' answer. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Wow. Jesus is referring to that cataclysmic battle so long ago that he witnessed, which he watched God win, and it couldn't have lasted more than an instant because God is in sovereign and in charge of all things. And Satan, Jesus says, fell like lightning from heaven. And now Peter says, he's real. He's active. Your part is to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I told you his name in this verse wasn't translated. Diabolos just means, you might want to make a note of this, because it's how you experience one of his effects, one of his attacks. Devil means slanderer. You ever been slandered? Facebook makes it so easy, doesn't it? Somebody can just pop up on your social media and say the most awful things. Little anonymous email that goes out. So let me tell you the truth about Bill, folks. He's not who he appears to be. Did you know he stole half of our company's money? And somebody forwards you the like, what is this? Who is this? I'm being slandered. I'm being lied about. That's what the devil does. As my pastor, Dr. Melton, used to say, Satan is a slanderer, and he accuses God to men and men to God. He comes to you in times of suffering and trial and lies to you, and maybe you've heard the whispers. He'll say things like this. Look at you. You know who you are. You know what you do. You're not who your church thinks you are. It's not even the man your wife thinks you are. You're dirty. You can't be loved. This time you've gone too far. Don't you think God is tired of hearing from you about the same old stuff? Doesn't love you. In real trouble, he'll say he's not coming. He doesn't care enough. He cares about others. He doesn't care about you in that way. There are others he will help in that way. But these promises that you've been reading all your life, now that you need them, now that you need his power and his grace, tell me, where is he? And he accuses God to people. He even accuses people to God. If you read the book of Job, it begins with this extraordinary setting where Satan appears before God and makes a slanderous accusation about Job. What's the charge? He only loves you because you're good to him. You've been so good to him, who wouldn't love you? Take the stuff back. Start taking his stuff and see what happens. He'll curse you to your face. That's what he does. That's his means of attack. And Peter says, that's why you have to be sober-minded and you have to be watchful because he is your actual enemy and the slanderer prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The point in telling you all this is to tell you that the worst enemy you have is the one you don't believe exists. That's the most dangerous enemy of all. If someone has set their mind on doing you real harm and you don't even know they're in the world, much less in your life, you're in real danger. When our family left here and we became missionaries for seven years, 
before coming back. The very beginning of our time in mission in Mexico, we had a, a terrible evening and much worse for Sharice than it was for me because I had gone back to keep one of my final appointments with local churches. And I got one of the worst calls ever. She was safe at that time. Families in our church had come to take her somewhere else to keep her safe for the night. But she called and said that someone, some stranger, some man had called our house and threatened our family. And I never felt so helpless and angry. But even on that night, I was thankful for one thing. And in Mexico, where murder and kidnapping are so common, I was thankful that at least it was a threat. And guy, God's providence, he spared us, and nothing ever came of that. But a threat, as fearful as it is, is much worse than someone simply deciding to do you harm and never announcing it. You won't ever engage reality as it actually is until you take Jesus seriously until you hear the, those who were closest to him, who he used to give a scripture telling you, listen, you're in a real fight, and it's deadly, and the devil exists. He is a slanderer who means to do you harm. And your part, verse 9 says, is to resist him firm in your faith. You don't fight him. You're not strong enough for that. You resist him. His tactic, his method, because Jesus also called him in John chapter 8, the father of lies, your tactic of resistance is to hear the slander and to get rid of it because you know the truth and to resist him and to trust God rather than to listen to him. James knew about it. That's why it says in James 4, 7, regarding this same fight, look how Scripture agrees with Scripture. Read this with me. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Same thing that Peter's been telling you. In times of trouble, in times of anxiety, the reasonable, godly, life-saving response is to humble yourself under God. When you submit yourself to God, that's what it means to resist the devil. And because he's a coward, when he sees you standing firmly under God's hand and holding on to God, the coward will flee. He'll run away because he doesn't fight fair. And his aim, his goal is always the same. What he wants to do always is to destroy your trust in God. Look in verse 9. Resist him, Peter says. What's the next phrase? Firm in your faith. When you're in suffering, what is at issue is whether you will continue to have faith in God, whether you will trust Him, in other words. Because this isn't a matter of signing a creed, though that may be a good idea. This is a matter of exercising personal trust in God when you cannot see circumstances around you that tell you He's present. That's the battle. If He's real, and present, and obviously blessing, and obviously working on your behalf, it's not hard to trust Him at all. You can see His effects, you can see His goodness, but when there's real suffering, when there's real trial, when anxieties come, when pressure starts to crush you, and you're trying to decide whether to bear the burden alone or take shelter under God's hand and throw your burdens on Him, 
That's exactly where the battle is waged. And Peter is telling you, you need to be firm in your faith. See, the devil's mean, he's opportunistic. It may not surprise you that he's good at fighting and he's good at lying and he knows just how to victimize people. It's something like this. We live in the age of terrorism and of the many, many cruel things that terrorists do. One of the nastiest is this. They'll set off a bomb in a public place and kill innocent people. And of course, everything in society gears up and the first responders go rushing there. And people go to give help amongst the broken buildings and the bleeding bodies. And the first responders are there and helping. And if they're especially cruel and they've had time to prepare, then a second, even more horrifying thing happens. A second bomb goes off that kills the first responders and makes the casualty count go even higher. That's how the devil is opportunistic in suffering. As I'm about to show you, suffering is a normal part of life in this sin-stained world. Suffering, pain, death, loss comes to every single person. That's a fact of living on this side of heaven. But in that suffering, in those tears, in that uncertainty, in the inevitable question which always comes, where is God in all of this? That's exactly when the slanderer goes into action and says, you see, He can't keep you safe. He doesn't care. He really is a story made to to make stupid people feel better. There's no one coming. It's up to you. And at that moment, you lose your trust in God and you become a double victim. That's the second bomb going off. In addition to the suffering, now you've lost your trust in the only one who actually can help you fight and win in this reality. That's why Peter says, resist him firm in your faith. And then watch this. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See that little word, knowing? Any grammarians tell me what kind of word that is? Of course not. See, our English teacher told us this stuff mattered and nobody paid attention. (laughs) That is a participle in Greek and in English. That little ing word is designed to tell you while you're going through this, you need to continually keep this in mind. Keep paying attention to this one fact. Remember this, Peter says. Resist him. Resist the slanderer. Firm in your faith. Keeping your trust in God because that's what the fight is over. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced in your, by your brotherhood throughout the world. While you're going through this, know that everyone is hurting. That's the second fight tip. And it has to do with this. Peter is telling you, adjust your expectations because this fight's going to hurt. See, in all of life, if you're a very young person or you're an older person who should know better but you still behave like a very young person, let me tell you, expectations are everything in life. If you're expecting a good day and you have a tough one instead, it's shattering. If you know it's going to be hard going in, you're halfway home. 
This came home to me when I was only seven years old growing up in that beautiful country of Mexico. My parents took us to a little place, I believe it was called Celaya, I was very young, but because traumatic events linger, I still remember. They took us to lunch with this family after church, and there were a whole bunch of boys, and they were good hosts, and they said, listen, we have a little bit of a tradition, what we like to do after lunch, after we've digested a little bit. The boys here like to put the boxing gloves on and do a little sparring. Would you care to join them? Very hospitable. Well, sure. Now, I've seen boxing gloves, but I don't know if I'd ever put one on, so they gave me a pair to inspect. And I looked at two things. I looked at the opponents and I looked at the gloves. The opponents were half my size. So I thought, oh, I like that. And then I felt the gloves and I'm like, oh, these are like pillows. These are soft. And I asked myself a question that has led many men to a bad end. Here's the question. How bad could it be? <laughs> well, as it turns out, because of bad expectations, it turned out to be awful. I don't remember anything about those boys, but I do remember that the gloves were red and white because that's all I could see. <laughs> Flashes of red and white at a certain point, because I closed my eyes, hope because that, that helps, right, <laughs> to not be able to see at all. I mean, all I was seeing was red and white anyway as the next fist came in. At a certain point, I thought, I think all three of them are, are in here fighting me because there's no way one kid could punch this often and this hard. So I'd, you know, cover my face and boom, one in the gut. I'd go, ouch, that hurt. And I'd put my elbows down and bam, back in the nose. Oh, that's even worse. So I'd cover my face and he just worked me. What was the problem there? I had no idea what I was getting myself into. My expectations were way off. I thought it would be fun. I didn't think it would hurt. I thought I was bigger and stronger and certainly I could win. I was wrong about everything. And that's why this verse is so important. That's why this participle matters. Peter is saying to you, while you suffer, continually know this. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here's the countercultural thing that is so hard to believe in the United States, church. Suffering is part of the normal Christian life. Trial, suffering, tears, loss, death, they come for everybody. When sin entered God's creation, it ruined everything. And no one gets out untouched. No one gets out unharmed. That's the nature of the battle. But in this hyper-customized, super-comfortable world where getting up to change the TV channel is an unbearable burden, it's very easy to forget that suffering is part of the real world. Peter says, go through this knowing that your same kind of suffering, there's nothing special about your circumstance. It doesn't mean that God has singled you out. It doesn't mean that His faithfulness and love for you are no longer true. These, it, this is the common experience of all of your brothers and sisters throughout the whole world. And he ends with the best and most hopeful note possible. After you have suffered a little while, See, that's so important. Something I understand a little bit better now and didn't understand at all when Pastor Melton first hired me as a 19-year-old kid. 
was that life is filled with seasons. And there are times of blessing and refreshment and encouragement, and there are other times of trial and suffering and pain and tears. And God is constant and faithful through all of it. The seasons, none of them last. The suffering, thank God, is only for a little while. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself, you might want to underline that, God Himself, He won't delegate that. He will keep that task for Himself. He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the tip? This. Keep your hope because God Himself will get you safely home. See, when it's a fight for life, men and women who put on uniforms and load up heavy gear meant to protect their lives, when it's not for sport, when it's real and lives are on the line, their ultimate goal is to get home, to not die in the struggle. Peter says the enemy's real, his tactics are brutal. He will slander you and lie about you and lie to you all of your life. He will never let up. He is cruel, tenacious, and unresting. He will eat you up if you let him. That's why you have to keep your head up, and that's why you have to stay alert. But you need to remember that all of this is happening everywhere, and your role is to resist him. To submit to God rather than to listen to His lies and wait for Him to run away and wait for a better time, knowing all the while that this is the common experience of everyone, but it's only for a little while. Because God Himself, who has called you to His eternal glory, and if God is calling you safely home, no one can do anything to stop Him. He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because it just so happens that He's completely in charge. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me ask you perhaps the most important question of all, and let's be real for a second. How are you really doing? See, because in the church culture, it's so easy to give the pat answer, isn't it? I love standing out in the parking lot and watching people arrive. Sometimes the heads are turned toward each other. Oh, hi, Pastor. Hey, good morning. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So good to be here. Is there coffee? I'm thinking of pouring some on him. Huh? When I was in seminary, we had to take a psychological test that, among other things, indicated whether you fake good or fake bad. No one is perfectly honest. People fake that things are worse than they are. This is your friend with all the Facebook drama, right? Had a flat tire, activate the prayer chain, right? Just the worst day ever. <laughs> we stand fast in these trials of flat tires. You have these friends? I do. And I just smile and think, boy, when real trouble comes, I don't know what's going to happen. Facebook might actually melt. And that's faking bad. Most Christians, because of what we think it looks like to walk with Jesus, we don't fake bad, we fake good. And we don't acknowledge that it's hard and that we're lonely and that we hurt. 
and that we fight to remember when the battle has reached us that God actually does love us and He really is faithful and He actually is good and we actually believe even in the middle of all that trial that it's God Himself who will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. So how are you really doing? He knows. He cares. You can tell Him the truth. If you've been listening to the lies and you've lost your sense of hope, if you think that this season of suffering that you're in is going to go on forever and that you'll have a bad end, remember the end of the story. God Himself, the God of all grace who satisfied His righteous demands that sin should be punished, God did the most amazing thing. He put your sins on Jesus. That's why Jesus came. He suffered the punishment of sin so that God would never have to look at you again as a guilty person, so that He could see you instead with a life that has been traded with the life of Jesus so that you are righteous. You are a beloved daughter. You are a beloved son of God. And what is true of Jesus amazingly, miraculously is now true of you. That's why Peter says, to you He is the God of all, what? Grace. Because His holiness, His justice, His hard attributes that demand justice, and rightfully so, because there really is evil and wickedness in the world, and it must be punished. Your part in that punishment was absorbed by love by Jesus Christ. So God to you is the God of all grace, who Himself will take up the task of comforting you of taking you home to His eternal glory, and He Himself will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you when the suffering is over and establish you, and you will not be moved because His is the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how are you really doing? My invitation to you is to really tell Him. And if you've been suffering and you've been surprised by the fight, that you would recognize that you've listened to lies, perhaps, as I so often do, but your Father loves you and tells you the truth, that everybody suffers, but that you can always keep your hope alive because God Himself will make sure that you get safely home. Can we pray along those lines? Could I invite you, please, to take a moment to yourself between you and the Lord? How's it really going? First question, most important, do you really know Jesus for yourself? In terms of going to heaven, of being saved, of being secure, is it a hope so or a no so? Are you certain? Jesus died so that you could be certain because it doesn't depend on you, it depends on Him. It's His life. His death, His resurrection, that's what's going to save you. The pressure is off. The battle is always between trusting you, trusting yourself, trusting what you can see, and keeping your faith and putting your faith maybe for the first time in God to save you. If you're not certain of that, let me just simply invite you person to person, needy person to needy person, cry out to Jesus and ask Him to save you this morning. You don't have to have the right words. You don't need any more preparation than this, a humble heart who says to Jesus, I get it. I don't get all of it, but I know I'm a sinner, and I know you're the Savior. Please save me. Trust Him.
Paul told a needy man like that, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your trust in him, he'll save you. And if, as the case for so many of us, you already know him, how's it really going? How are you really doing? Are you suffering? Have you been listening to lies all week? Are you constantly bombarded with accusations about your self-worth, your value, your future? How worthy of love and grace and acceptance you are? That's the slanderer. Your father would never speak to you that way. He's a perfect dad. He's the father you always wanted. He will always speak to you with truth, with love. And to you, because of Jesus' sacrifice, He will be the God of all grace. So I'll be quiet now. Why don't you give Him your burdens? Why don't you ask Him to remind you of the truth and give you the grace to trust it? You can fight this enemy and win. Father, here we are, needy as we are, weak, self-accused, slandered, hurting. Here we are, and you love us so perfectly. You call us your children. You sent your son, now our older brother Jesus, to die so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could have eternal life and comfort and blessing and peace every step of the way on the way home. Thank you. Bear our burdens, Lord. Fight our battles for us. Speak the truth to us and give us the grace to listen and to believe you instead of the lies. And receive, Lord, these prayers. If there's someone here, anyone, perhaps many, who need Jesus as Savior, I pray that right now, in this moment, they would move their trust over to Him instead of themselves. Lord, receive this offering. It's intended to preach the good news of Jesus, to offer compassion in Texas and Florida, all kinds of places, Lord, where people, suffering has really crushed people. We want to be part of your grace and part of your hope as we act toward them as Jesus would. Receive this offering. Receive our prayers, our confession. In Jesus' name, amen.